Welcome to episode one of the Inner Logic Culture Series, where great ideas come together. This episode features executive performance coach Jason Seeley. Jason consults with organizations like Loblaws, Shoppers Drug Mart, Nav Canada, Queen School of Business, The Reach Project, Ryerson Athletics, and many more, if you can believe it. We were honored Jason would join us for episode one of our series, and we hope you enjoy. As I mentioned in the introduction, Jason describes himself as an executive performance coach. So I wanted to find out what exactly he does, why organizations bring him into the fold, and what those pain points are for them that they just can't seem to solve internally. Yeah, it's a good question. I would say it depends on the organization. Some organizations are looking for you to have an immediate impact by like changing uh, some type of pervasive and prevalent issue that's been going on forever, and they want you to come in and, and change it and fix it. I think through the evolution of uh, working, I've started to shy away from that type of work because you know I'm not gonna. I'm, there's no quick fix to, to big problems. Um, these things take time. Um, some organizations uh, really appreciate the opportunity to evolve and grow to what they're calling a learning culture. Uh, uh, to adopting a coaching culture. Uh, organizations are, are really thinking in terms of like a developmental bias, like how do we develop our people? And um, <clears throat> those are the types of organizations that keep me around for the long haul. They want me as part of a journey to continuously uh, help them evolve to better develop their people. And the, re- the reasons why they need to develop their people is that it's expensive to go through. <laughs> uh, it's expensive to hire someone uh, onboard them, train them, and then after a year or two, uh, if they're not performing, you know, fire them, and then hire somebody else to do and go through the same process. In the aviation world, uh, it costs a million dollars to train someone from ab initio, what they call ab initio, so someone's off just off the street, they've just been, uh, they just started their training, to getting a license. That's a two-year process. It costs a million dollars to do that, so. If you get halfway through the process and they're not successful, think about that, like $500,000 down the chute um, because we weren't able to be effective at developing our people. So there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a cost to not being able to develop people. I'll also work with some smaller boutique organizations in Toronto where you know, there may be a staff of under 20 people you know, um, and, and they're not able to pay uh, they're not able to pay what big consulting firms would pay or big marketing agents would pay their staff. So they're really relying on, you know, that person who's one or two years out of university, um, who they can hire as a coordinator and they can develop them into like an account manager and account director. And that whole journey takes about five years and them holding that person for five years. Um, they give that person a lot of responsibility and a lot of title and you know, low pay in some cases. Um, but it's incumbent on those organizations to be able to develop because they're not going to be able to pull someone who's fully formed um, and pay a fully formed person to stay with the organization. So um, those org- organizations are really, um, really buying into the whole idea of we have to develop our people, a developmental bias, and making sure that they've got a coaching approach to their leadership to make sure that they're developing those people and retaining them and getting the most out of them. So Jason talked about the cost of people development. 
He also touched on the cost of culture and the value of taking a coaching approach to leadership. These are all things that we're obviously really big on at Interlogic. So I wanted to find out more about what signals or indicators um, show an organization that a person or a team just isn't working out or aligning with their culture. Question: um, A couple things. So results are always uh, usually the first uh, yellow flag. So um, you know, an organization, uh, sorry, a team not meeting its KPIs. Um, maybe maybe those KPIs are related to sales. Um, you know, often in the business world they're related to you know revenue generation. In the sport world, it would be you know. Um, in basketball in particular, you know, there's a certain amount of rebounds we need you to, to get or a certain <laughs> amount of points. Like, you know, I think all coaches have an idea of what different individual uh, contributors need to contribute for the team to be successful. So if those things aren't happening, then, okay, you know, there's a yellow flag. Um, I think that, uh, so results are one thing. What I'm noticing in the, in the business world and in the sport world <clears throat> is the metacognitive skills. What I mean by the metacognitive skills, it's, it's a person's own uh, responsibility to drive their own development. So when coaches or employers uh, see someone stagnating, they're not growing. We've given them this feedback, though. We've told them they need to get better at this. Um, or maybe we haven't, and they just haven't, uh, you know, they don't want it enough, or <laughs> they're not bought in. I mean, that's some of the language that we hear. Um, really what that comes down to is that individual for some reason not driving and accelerating their own growth and uh, and that's when we get into those metacognitive skills um, and you know Dane Jensen of performance coaching he really qualified these really well a few years ago at a breakfast I was at with him he bucketed them into three buckets the first bucket is seeing clearly so seeing clearly is a person's ability to assess their own performance uh, you know, what are my strengths? <clears throat> um, what are my limitations? What was my overall performance there? Um, that's half of the scene clearly. The other half of the scene clearly is really like curiosity and seeking feedback. You know, what, what feedback did I get from my coaches or from the environment or from the leaders or other people on the team? That's the first step, but that's not good enough on its own. The next step is about moving quickly. <clears throat> and uh, Dane, you know, uh, talked about this bucket of moving quickly. So now I have this information. Great. What do I do with it? Well, I've got to be creative about uh, practicing these things. And this is where deliberate practice, the idea of deliberate practice comes in and, and creative about how I deliberately practice it. Because I may not, like in a sport example, I may not be able to practice my three-point shooting in a game. Uh, I, have to pro I have to find other ways to do it. So maybe I do it in an individual session with, a, with an assistant coach or I do it on my own with the shooting gun uh, in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the aviation world, maybe I go into the simulator to practice certain things, to practice my phraseology or to practice uh, uh, coordination because I can't just practice it uh, deliberately um, when I'm on the job because, you know, the situation may not call for it. But I've got to be creative about what are different ways that I can practice this skill so that I can show up better the way I want to show up uh, when it's game time. And then the last piece is around staying the course. So we know that any time that we step outside of our comfort zone and we, you know, we, we put these new ideas into action, we stretch ourselves, it's uncomfortable, right? Like we feel that visceral um, <clears throat> discomfort of just not being sure of what we're doing and not feeling confident. And you know, we're, we're just in that stretch zone. 
It sounds like identifying the right people is a huge advantage when it comes to culture building. So I was really curious, how do you find the right people? So I was at, I, I interviewed for a company years ago and they asked me to uh, present some of their, their work to them. So there's about six or eight people in the panel. Um, they said, present, we want you to present this module of our work to us. I presented it to them and they gave me a whole bunch of feedback. The second interview, they asked me to present an original work to them. And I presented it to them in the second interview, but what they, and what I also did is I also incorporated the feedback that they'd given me after I presented the first module. So after I presented the second module, what they told me was they said, you know what, what we were really looking for is we were looking for, we were looking to see whether you would incorporate the feedback from the first time that uh, you presented into the second time that you presented without us having to tell you this. They were onboarding and recruiting for meta skills, for these metacognitive skills, without asking you questions about it. They put you in this real life simulation of it and just wanted to see how you responded. So uh, these are some of the things that start to work with organizations on because try to help organizations be clear on, look, if you, you're the people who hired these, these people. So if you hired them, and there's obviously a reason why you hired them, <clears throat> Is it that the individual is flawed, as you're saying, or is it that our onboarding, our development process was flawed? So if we hire the good people, then it probably means that our developmental process is flawed. Okay, so let's say you get the right people on the bus. Now what? I wanted to hear from Jason's experiences. How do the best leaders actually build high-performance culture on a daily basis? What do they actually do? It's just, you know, the leader just has this, this understanding of what seems to make things work. They understand that uh, you know people need to feel uh, a level of psychological safety in their environment. They they need to feel like they're they can they can ask questions. They can present insights. <clears throat> um, they can make mistakes and not be crushed for those mistakes. Um, people need to know what their people need to know what their job is for um, them to be dependable. You know they need to know okay what do I need to do here every day. To, to be dependable and, and they need to get feedback on that so that they can refine their competence in those areas and, and be more dependable. Uh, and then for that to happen, then there needs to be structure and clarity. Um, you know, um, there's a, a, I think it's, a, a, Peter Jensen might have said it, like imagery is a language of performance. So, um, you know, if you can see it, you stand that much of a better chance to be able to do it. Um, so people have to see what success looks like, and there must be the structures in place to facilitate that success. Um, people need to find some meaning in the work. So maybe the work in itself is fantastic. Uh, there's some work I'm doing with uh, the REACH project at University of Toronto, and they're doing this international research of reaching the hard-to-reach in developmental countries. So think about how do you get, how do you successfully execute um, an Ebola um, eradication strategy in a country where you don't even know where new people are born. Like people are living in such a rural community in this country that you don't even know when they're born. You, they don't have they don't have birth certificates. <laughs> so how do you facilitate this type of a process? When um, how do you reach the hard to reach in these circumstances? Um, that work of itself for the people who are participating is so meaningful. Then there's people who you know, you connect with who their job is to, I don't know, uh, clean the toilets in the organization, right? 
what's the meaning? Well, the meaning for them is my job is to make sure this place is perfectly clean and there's, especially in this COVID situation, this COVID world, that there's no disease, there's no bacteria, um, and I take ownership and I take pride in that. Or my job pays for me to put food on the table and a roof over my head for my family. So that's the meaning. Whatever the meaning is, just making sure that it connects with people. And then finally, that everyone feel like, people feel like they're having an impact on what's going on. Um, they feel like they're contributing, uh, their, their, their work matters. Uh, and I think people, people are more engaged when they feel like their work matters. So these examples got me really excited because the Interlogic platform actually uses some of the research from Google's Project Aristotle to measure team behaviors. But what if Jason goes in somewhere and the current culture doesn't reflect any of these behaviors? Where do you start? I told Jason that I read an article uh, recently that suggested that to change a culture, the first thing you have to do is unfreeze or thaw the old culture. So I asked Jason, is this where he starts? Does he try and unfreeze what's currently going on? And if this is where he starts, how do you execute that unfreezing process? Yeah, so I wouldn't say that it happens that deliberately in stages. Like first we're unfreezing and mm. then we are sort of remodeling things and then we're going to try to refreeze. I think it all happens uh, simultaneously. Um, but um, the unfreezing part is funny because I, 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 what I'm hearing there is, uh, I mean, there's a few models of organizational change. Cotter's model, he's like a whatever eight-step model of organizational change. And the first, mo first step is, uh, I think the first three steps are around the whole concept of unfreezing. So where I'll get with, I'll, I usually ask organizational leaders, like, you know, why is there an urgency to change? Like, what, what is it about this, the current state of affairs that requires us to need to change? Because I think if you're going to unfreeze, you've got to give people a reason to, to unfreeze. <laughs> so, you know, the story that I, I communicated to, to you with, with NAV Canada in particular, and I put dollars and cents to it, um, that's the reason why the organization wants to unfreeze because that's a huge price to pay and they're paying that out, you know, a lot. The challenge then becomes, can we make that, that statistic relevant to um, the people you're trying to move? So it's one thing for the organization to look at this and say, look, we're, we're losing, you know, if we're, if we're only qualifying half of the people who are training and, you know, we get people halfway through the training each time, we're losing $500,000 a pop, that's a lot for the organization to, to absorb, but if I'm a frontline worker or I'm, I'm, I'm a coach, why do I care? You know, I still, get my, I still get paid on the 1st and 15th of every month. So we have to now be able to frame uh, the urgency to change on things that are relevant and meaningful for the people you are serving. So uh, in that situation, <clears throat> um, as a frontline worker or as a, a air traffic controller, well, if we don't train new people, we don't get new people on board, uh, your unit is going to shrink. So the people who are working in your specialty are, is going to shrink. Um, you will be working incredible amounts of um, overtime, which was actually a good thing for a lot of old controllers. They loved working the overtimes. They got paid a ton of money. Controllers do quite well. Uh, the challenge now with the newer controllers is they, want, they actually want their time back. Uh, they're, they're like the new generation of, 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 of uh, I don't know if it's Generation Z or X. Or I'm not sure what generation we're in right now, but People who, yeah, they want to put in a good day's work, but they also want their time to go traveling and spend time with their family and, and enjoy the things that, uh, that fill their cup. So for those people, it's about communicating, okay, the urgency to change is that if we don't, you're not going to have that time to go out on your boat 
or to go traveling around the world or spend time. So that becomes part of the, 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 the technique to, to support the unfreezing is making that urgency to change relevant, not just to the organization, um, but also to the people who are on the team. So finding ways to find what is important for those people on the team and then um, being able to communicate the urgency to change through that lens. Okay, so it sounds like unfreezing a culture requires a common sense of urgency among the group. That's a really important point. So let's say you have that and, and Jason as a consultant is in a company helping a team learn and grow and build their culture. I wanted to learn more about what he actually does. Like what facilitation strategies, what tools does he use to take a team from say a 6 out of 10 to a 6.5 or a 7 out of 10? What is he actually doing? What does that look and feel like when he's with a group? Um, so I would say I don't think there's one thing. Um, and I think this is where sport really has it nailed uh, in the sense that <clears throat> one of the ways – so when we're talking about psychological safety. I want just people to feel safe to, hey, share an insight and do their best and know that they're not going to get crushed by a team member uh, for making a mistake. I uh, want people to feel comfortable giving feedback, things like that. and that really, for people to feel most comfortable doing that, a couple of things have to happen. There, you know, we need to start to build relationships between team members. So I think uh, I was on a I was on a coaching uh, community call the other day, and uh, the word team building came out. And you know, there's some pro coaches on that call, and they're like, ah, team building, you know, that gets that's overrated and it gets inauthentic. And um, and I don't disagree with them. I think that language has gotten played out a little bit. But I think what we're trying to do is create relationships and pipelines between players so that they feel like they feel comfortable having conversations with each other. They feel comfortable exchanging with each other and influencing each other. Um, so, so to that, I think that, you know, with sport, it's like the athletes are together on the bus or on the flight. Um, you know, they're, they're together in the, in the, the, the team room or through practices and then, you know, it's film and, and study, if it's a university environment, it's study hall and there's just so many opportunities for them to interact and exchange information around, information that facilitates like self-other overlap. So what are the things that we have in common? You know, and I think those things that we have in common tend to be, and I'm pulling from psychological, uh, sorry, from uh, positive psychology now, that self-other overlap now tends to be those, those avenues of connection, right? Uh, those, those ways that if I didn't know someone, if I'm a rookie coming in and, you know, there's a fourth, third or fourth year player, well, if I didn't feel connected with them before, now that I realize, oh, my gosh, we're from the same hometown, right? <laughs> or, you know, both of our grandparents come from this country, or we both do this for Thanksgiving, or we love to wear our socks a certain way, <laughs> whatever it might be. Um, those become um, some of the, you know, the connection points. But I feel like sport teams, there's just so many opportunities to create those connections just through the natural flow of a team. And then now, in the college and university environment in particular, coaches are being even more uh, proactive about uh, finding other ways to create connection and togetherness. Um, so it's not just the connection togetherness is not just the byproduct of the amount of time that the team spends together on the bus or, or um, you know, in practice and things like that. Now they're, you know, they're, they're bringing in facilitators like myself and, you know, like someone like Danielle Dobney or even like yourself who will, will facilitate an activity um, and, and 
trying to accelerate that, that connection. Um, I like to focus on, I personally love to focus on activities that facilitate that self-other overlap, like getting us to know a little bit more about each other on a depth level so that we can find the things that we have in common to, to help us to feel more comfortable uh, with each other so that we can have more meaningful conversations to then solve problems on the court, on the pitch, on the field in real time. Um, but I really feel like, I don't think there's one thing. I think there's so much that uh, needs to be done, but I think there has to be an intention uh, around team development by the leaders. I think that, I use this, this analogy all the time, I think in sport, the same way that we practice our systems and we practice shooting and, 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 and read and react and, and different uh, technical, tactical aspects of the game, I think we have to practice um, teaming and practice relationship building um, wherever possible because I feel like whatever you practice you get good at um, so it, it can be separate facilitations but it can also be really zoning in on you know it's a practice um, we notice these things all the time you know two people are trying or a teams trying to execute something it, it they're not able to execute it and you'll notice by maybe you'll see body language from one of the team members like, Ugh, you know like you should have caught that pass or you know you should have you should have flared instead of rolling on that screen or, or whatever it might be but there's no com we don't see a conversation happen uh, we don't see an exchange of information we don't see one person trying to um, help their teammate be more competent we just see one person re reacting to uh, how they're feeling about the situation so those are the times and you know I love being at practices and observing that standing there and observing and kind of saying, okay let's see Let's see if this person communicates in time with their teammate, or let's see if they communicate the next dead ball uh, with their teammate. Let's see if there's any, you know, okay, you got it next time, or here's what we need to do. Let's see if there's any opportunity to connect and correct. Um, and so it can be a, a facilitation, bringing a third party in, or it can be just paying attention in the moment to those types of opportunities um, for people to connect as a team. Um, and and I think those are, those are just as valuable as bringing somebody in and, and, and facilitating um, um, some activities. I'm sure tons of organizations would love to have someone like Jason around all the time, helping them build culture. But that's just not reality. And research actually indicates that changing the environment is the most sustainable way to create behavior change in your people. There's even studies out there showing that where you put the coffee maker can improve connectivity and improve production as a result. So I asked Jason, um, has he helped organizations implement any environmental changes that he's seen really help them improve their culture and improve their environment? Um, as he answers this question, you're going to hear him refer to someone named Carly. And just for your context, he's referring to Carly Clark, who's the head coach of the Ryerson women's basketball team, the assistant coach on our uh, women's national team. And um, I've had the great pleasure of working with Carly for a number of years now with the national team. She, she's amazing. But what I really love is Jason's ability to make connections between sport and business. Yeah, <clears throat> great question. And, and I think um, I'll, I'll focus more on changes that we can make in how we do things, because they're less expensive, <laughs> that, that uh, influence uh, that environment. Um, so you mentioned, I mean, you brought up meetings. Um, I think um, one of the ways I've been able to really influence a lot of clients um, who weren't intentional about this before is um, just 
getting the idea of huddles, we call them huddles. So this is me bringing sport language in um, uh, to their environment. So it can be a weekly huddle, it can be a project-based huddle, but just like at the start of a sport practice, it's creating that environment where, um, hey, let's get organized on what, you know, what's, what's the practice gonna look like? Here's the practice plan, here's what we're trying to, here's what success looks like today. Well, bringing that to a corporate environment, we huddle at the beginning of the week and say, you know, here's what success is gonna look like this week. And it opens up the environment for different, uh, different contributors to share. Um, it can also, and, I, and I'm gonna take this from Carly because I've heard Carly use this language which I've completely stolen from her because I think it's so awesome to create that environment. We can also put in different uh, questions for our team to think about that starts to uh, create our culture and our environment. So sometimes Carly will ask the question, what are you struggling with? She'll ask the question and then she'll say, here's what I'm struggling with right now. And it's not pointed at anyone. She's talking about something that she's uh, deliberately working on right now as part of her own development. Something that she's maybe in that conscious competent mode. Um, she's just outside of her comfort zone and struggling to learn this and get better at it. And she's completely authentic and completely honest with it. But I feel like sharing those types of things that you as a leader are struggling with and are working on and are imperfect at and are asking for other people's help with and, and declaring that to your team, but then giving the team the space to also communicate those types of things is a great way to uh, facilitate that environment of, wow, I guess around here, this is what we talk about, right? Um, in addition to huddles, um, I'm gonna, again, I'm gonna take from sport environments. Sport is great at um, debriefing. And sometimes a debrief looks like a conversation at. Uh, at the end of a, a, a performance. Um, um, sometimes this debrief looks like watching film or just you know, uh, comparing actuals to some of the KPIs. Um, you know, it looks like different things. I think um, what I've seen from what we do at Queens and we bring to the business world is just a, a, a debrief that is facilitated by the coach but not directed by the coach. So it's, hey, you know what? at the end of this week or at the end of this project, at the end of this event, uh, or at the end of this deliverable, hey guys, what went well? What went well in this deliverable, this event? And we're really, it's the coach posing the question and then coach shuts up and listens, right? Or the leader slash coach. Um, and then well, what didn't go well for, for you? You know, and, and giving people the space to unpack that and then, you know, okay, if, let's talk about the Delta. Let's talk about if you had a mulligan and, and um, you had a do-over on that whole kind of thing. Uh, knowing what you know now, what would you do differently? And helping give people that space to, um, you know, solve, come up with their own solutions and and even play back the certain situations again. Uh, these are things that these are practices from sport that uh, that really start to serve a change of a culture and a change of how we do things around here, without even uh, modifying the physical space. Um, you know, and then there's things that happen in corporate communities that, that have happened for a while, like, you know, off-sites and, you know, going for drinks after work that, um, that really do speak to um, how, we, how we want to interact. But I think when those things are led by, uh, led by the leaders, uh, it, it really helps. I think facilitating environments um, where we deliver feedback. So organizations in the corporate environment, they'll do... Um, performance appraisals or performance assessments, performance reviews. Um, what could be even more valuable are peer reviews. 
So, you know, performance reviews, you sit down with your boss, your boss says, okay, here's what the goals are for the year, and here's how I think you, you, you did with those things. What about a review where there's an opportunity for people you work with on a day-to-day -day basis on your sub-team, your cross-functional team, your functional team, to give you feedback and you give them feedback because you guys work together uh, collaboratively um, more consistently. So those opportunities, like facilitating a safe place to, to, um, to uh, have those opportunities to share that information and making those things the norm, making those types of, types of conversations the norm, that, that's how we do things around here. We give each other feedback, right? We, we help each other, forget we give each other feedback, we help each other to grow, you know? And the way that I help you to grow is, you know, I, I reinforce, I give you reinforcing feedback when you've done something that aligns with our expectations, and I give you modifying feedback when, you know, you've missed the mark a little bit, but I'm trying to help you to, to, to hit the mark, right? Um, so I think being intentional about those things, um, whether it's in a huddle or it's in some other process, you know, just check-ins with your people. So um, I've had leaders who, they don't know anything about the people they work with. They know nothing about their, 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 their team, their staff. And the relationship is quite transactional with their people. Um, I get contacted from some organizations uh, to do executive coaching. And really, the person, person I'm working with, their sole purpose for wanting executive coaching is they want a promotion. They want to move up the line. And uh, I'm fortunate now to not have to accept that work anymore. And you know, I'm, I now limit myself to, no, no, I, I tend to, I, I work with people who are really authentic about supporting their people. And through the support of their people, you know, you'll get recognized. And that will be how you'll move up the line. But I'm not about, you know, sort of navigating the, the, the politics of a, of a corporate environment. But just even moving the relationship, I am, yes, I might be the, uh, the identified lead, or the coach, um, but it doesn't mean that we can't know things about each other. It doesn't mean that, um, uh, you know, it's that transactional. So looking for those opportunities to, um, you know, have a two-minute conversation with your people and making sure that you've touched, you've, you've created touch points with each person and you know something about them and they know something about you. So I think those are some things that start to communicate um, that these are some things that are expected and create that environment of safety. But then there's also pieces around clarity. So people do, people perform at a high level when they know what's expected of them. So I think organizations, and when I brought that language into corporate, corporate organizations and sort of built it out through some examples of what clarity looks like and what it doesn't look like, that's always one that blows people away. Uh, and what I mean by clarity is I mean that people have a clear picture, sorry, that we're all on the same page as far as what success looks like, right? We're all, we're all on the same page of what success looks like. We're all on the same page as far as how we're going to get there, right? And my people, I've, I've been able to explain it in a way that my people get it. So it's one thing for me to have this picture, but it's nothing. My people have to understand it, right? So, and that seems to be a piece that's big. So even having that language and making sure that everyone is really diligent about ensuring that the people that they're working with on the same on the team have the same picture. I love how aligned Jason's priorities are with our InterLogic metrics. When we were designing this program, we had 50 areas that we initially had kind of targeted, and Clarity made it into the final seven that actually made it into the program. So I wanted to build on this topic, topic of clarity a little bit. I described to Jason a facilitation exercise that I had used with the national team a few years back. And the exercise went like this. Everyone on the team picked a song. 
and they would get up in front of the team and they were asked to hum that song um, and the rest of the team would try and guess what song they were humming as quickly as they could. And for almost everyone who was doing this activity, about halfway through or once they got through the first chorus, they would kind of stop and be like, how haven't you guys got this yet? It's so obvious. They couldn't believe that something that was so clear in their mind was so unclear to the people that they were communicating with. So I shared this exercise with Jason, and luckily enough, Jason had heard of this exercise. He used it himself, um, and he had some real-life examples of where he applied it. Uh, as a researcher, her name is Elizabeth Newton. She was out of, I think, Stanford University. She, she had this, uh, this concept that she popularized through this, this uh, research uh, experiment called, the, uh, the concept is called the curse of knowledge. So she puts, she has like 40 people in a room. She splits the group of 40 into two groups. One group is labeled as the tappers. The other group is labeled as the listeners. Uh, the tappers job, so the tappers are given a list of, you know, well-known songs, happy birthday, um, star spangled banner, things like that. Um, and their job is to tap out this, sit across from one of the listeners and tap out the sound of the song in a way that the listener would be able to understand and identify correctly the sound of the song. Before the experiment, they asked the tappers, uh, what do you think the success rate is going to be? And uh, the tappers said they thought the success rate would be 50%. So one of, one of every two songs would be correctly identified. So they go through the experiment, and just like your experiment there, they experience the same thing. You know, someone's, uh, you know, I actually do this as a facilitation. So if it was me, I might pick the Star Spangled Banner kind of thing. I you know, support I hear that song a lot, but I wouldn't pick any version of it. I would probably pick, like, for me, what's an iconic version of it, which would be um, Jimi Hendrix performing the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock. So, you know, I'd sit across from the listener, and I'd start tapping out the sound of this song. But as I'm tapping it out, what I'm seeing in my mind is I'm seeing Jimi on stage. And, you know, I see Jimi, like, take his guitar out, and I'm, you know, Jimmy starts playing the first few chords. And he so goes on, and there's a sea of people at Woodstock, and everyone's wearing tie-dye and their headbands and long hair, and everyone's stoned out of their minds, and it's this incredible scene. It's packed. And this is what I'm seeing as the person tapping it out. This is the picture I've got in my mind. Well, what is the what is the listener getting? So um, they're like, uh, you know, give me a clue. Give me a clue. So um, I, I do a facilitation, a uh, little activity there uh, on that. And it really comes down to trying to do your best to make your communications um, concrete, uh, make them clear, but making them observable. So what is it that we would see someone do or what is it that we would hear someone say that would demonstrate, you know, what I'm trying to get someone to do? So if it's like, you know what, I need you guys to work harder, right? What is it, what is it, what is the, what are the observables? Like, what is it I need to see that person do? Or what is it I need to hear them say? Like, you know, in sport, we hear it all the time. Like, you got to work harder. And, or in business, like, you got to be more bought in. What does that mean? Like, that's not clear. So the more the leaders can break those uh, concepts down into observables that people can jump on board. Like, okay, yeah, I know what it, uh, be bought in. You want me to be on time at work? Okay, great. That's that's something I can I can do. I can I can buy into that. But just that concept of being more bought in in sport, like we got to work harder. What does that mean? Well, I need you to box out. Like I need you to go find a body and hit someone 
uh, while the balls and while the balls in flight. Okay, I can I can I can do that. <laughs> so uh, finding ways to make those things uh, more observable um, helps to create clarity. And that's one that's a big one with leaders. When we unpack those with th that whole concept with them, that's like a oh yeah, we get that. <laughs> So I wanted to close this conversation with a quick hitter that summarized or captured kind of all of the different themes that we had talked about. So I told Jason that I had heard a quote once from a coach that said, if I had six hours to cut down a tree, I'd spend four of those hours sharpening the ax. And I asked him to build on this and, and kind of share what he thinks the ratio should be when it comes to development versus the pursuit of results in the business world. Um. Look, in business, it's about results. So at the end of the day, results matter. Results are we're going to keep things and keep the organization going. Uh, but it's like, how do you get those results? So I think the ratio should be closer to, you know, maybe it's if it's a six-point scale, it's it's three and three. Um, and I think that to get sustained results over the long term, I think we have to make a commitment to developing our people. And no one's ever fully formed, so. Um, you know, the results can look even greater down the road if we continue to, uh, to, to focus on the development of our people. And, you know, it could be the development in terms of what the organization needs from them, but it's even best if it's what they, what they want to work on and what they want to get better at, uh, you know, leveraging their strengths and, and, and growing their strengths to pull from positive psychology. So I think there needs to be a better balance in the corporate world. Um, there's, there's more of an understanding of, okay, we, we, we hire you, so you've got the skills, now do the job. You know, again, well, depends on who you're really hiring, you know, and, uh, and uh, do, you, do they have all the skills? And then what happens when the job changes, right? We're working in the look, I mean, we're working in this information age now where change happens all the time, faster and faster. But look at what just happened with COVID. Boom, things were changing at, at in, like this incredible pace, and now we have COVID, and boom, everything changes again instantly on the drop at the drop of a dime. So, do you have in place this this way of building out these metacognitive skills with your people, so that they can respond to these types of changes? So, as an organization, you can respond to these types of changes to still produce the results. So, I think that's why you got to be splitting your time between developing your people intentionally. And, and the results.